You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is the entirety of Psalm 55, so start with me in verse 1. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it, on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, and yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we looked at the topic of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is, if you remember, diligently seeking to embrace God's eternal promises. And we're actually in a different series, uh, the Formed in Prayer series, by the way. Um, sorry, little pet peeves. Uh, I will get over these things. Um, let, me, let me start over. Spiritual formation is learning to embrace God's eternal promises through diligent daily practices, things done over and over and over again until they form godly habits, these grace 
filled habits that then weaken our sinful impulses and promote Christ-like character. And through the Lenten season, what we're going to be doing is we're focusing on the practice of prayer. And we're going to look at various psalms, various kinds of psalms, psalms of lament, psalms of confession, psalms of vengeance and precatory prayers. But today we're going to look at Psalm 55 and it's going to serve as sort of our introduction to this Lenten series. And, and how I want to begin is by, look, uh, by telling a story. And maybe you're familiar with this story. But in January of 2009, a flight uh, took off out of LaGuardia Airport in New York and it was headed towards North Carolina. And about, well, everything about the takeoff was very routine. Everything about getting into the air was very routine. But about two minutes into the flight, they hit a flock of Canadian geese. Now, planes hit birds, sadly. Um, but, you know, like one bird can damage a plane, but it can typically be navigated pretty safely. But this was a flock of Canadian geese. If you've ever seen Canadian geese, they're big birds. And it ended up taking down all the engines. They lost power completely. Now, context here, two minutes out of LaGuardia puts you over millions of people in the greater New York area. And they had a few options. One option was to try to get to a neighboring town, a small airport, but that seemed pretty unrealistic. Another option was to put it down on a major freeway. I think it was the New Jersey Turnpike, but it was like 3.45 in the afternoon. So it was like, let's save everyone on the plane and destroy millions of people as you just plow through this freeway. That was not a good option. Or the other option was to lay it down where? In the Hudson River. Okay, you're familiar with the story. And surprisingly, this was the best option. Let's put this plane down in the Hudson River. Chelsea Sullenberger, uh, a.k.a. Sully, and his co-pilot had just brief moments to do the following. Now, I want to read this list here. Just brief moments to try to restart the engines multiple times, shut down the engines once they determined that both engines were gone, achieve the right speed for gliding, disconnect the autopilot, override the flight management system, point the nose at a right angle, uh, the right angle, activate the ditch system, which essentially like seals off the plane from water getting in, determine the right I love this. Determine the direction of the flow of the Hudson River from the sky. Turn hard left to make sure that they were landing with the current and not against the current of the Hudson. Straighten the plane a split second before impact. Pull the nose of the plane up to the exact right angle so that it doesn't break either way. All while alarms are going off, panic is setting in, having to communicate to the flight crew, having to communicate to all of the passengers, and they put this plane down with zero fatalities. So it was later called, this is a true story by the way, um, it was later called the miracle in the Hudson. And in one sense, this was a miracle. But the miracle didn't just like start and end when the geese hit the plane and they put it down safely in the water. The miracle was also the fact that Sully was a seasoned pilot and he just also happened to be a gliding instructor. Thousands of flights, countless flight simulators, training in how to respond to unforeseen emergencies, years and years and years of repetition 
formed these instincts and abilities that were now second nature to him clearly when he needed it most. So here's the deal. Crisis, when crisis comes into our lives, our immediate response is going to be very telling. Right? Those split-second impulses are not going to be the result of sitting down with a level head, pulling out the whiteboard, and going through the pros and cons list. Okay, this is probably a good option. This would not be a good option. No, when crisis comes, instincts kick in. And your instinctual response comes really from the deepest place of your being. And what those instincts do is that they reveal not what you would like to believe about yourself, not what you hope to be one day. Instincts reveal what you're really made of. Instincts reveal your true nature. Let me, let me illustrate this. I would like to think that I'm a patient person. I would like to think that now that I've trusted in Jesus Christ, that I've been freed from sin and forgiven and given the power of the Holy Spirit, that anger and irrationality no longer have a grip on me. But that theory is tested every single day that I get behind the wheel, the steering wheel of my vehicle. And especially driving in Stockton. Can I get an amen? What is going on? Stockton drivers, we are going downhill. We need to turn that trend around. <laughs> so that theory is tested. And when I'm driving and someone inevitably cuts me off, what my arms do and what my fingers want to do, put that back down to your pastor, and what my, what my foot on the accelerator does, and as I go past and I turn my neck and the words that I'm, you know, mouthing to this person about how big of an idiot they are and like, where did you learn to drive? All of these things in that moment, these are the most telling. At that moment, the person that I'd like to be, the person that I'm hoping to be, the person that I'm even praying to be doesn't really matter. Oh, it was just a stressful morning. No, that, that was just a sudden lapse of of character that I don't normally do that really maybe it was that driver that forced something deep within me to surface I could tell myself that I'm a patient person but my instinctual response behind the wheel is not going to be able to lie and the reason for this is that distress overrides our willpower Distress overrides all of our best intentions. And what it will do is it causes what is deeply formed within us to kick in for better or, like in my case, for worse. Psalm 55 speaks to the unforeseen seasons of life when chaos comes out of nowhere. When the flock of seagulls, or flock of seagulls, ha, the flock of geese suddenly appear, like two people got that, that ages our church. Um, the flock of Canadian geese appear out of nowhere and then boom, impact. The engines are down, there's no avoiding the mess to come. How do you respond? Are you prepared to respond wisely and courageously or are you going to just try to wing it when it comes? What instincts kick in? What habits surface when your life gets out of control? And most specifically, here's the question I want to get to. Does a prayerful person emerge? 
when the you-know-what hits the fan, does a prayerful person emerge? Most of the time, messages on prayer, and specifically prayers like we see in Psalm 55, are going to sound something like this. When you're going through it, and crisis and challenge comes into your life, make sure that you cry out to God because he hears you and he sustains you. And this is absolutely true, by the way. This is an appropriate application. Some of you are like, I wish you could just preach a sermon that simple. I wish I could too. <laughs> but here's the dilemma. And there's a, a, an honest consideration that we need to, to make here. And it's this. What if prayer is just not your natural instinct? What if when crisis happens, prayer isn't natural? A theologian from the past once said that prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. That's inspiring. And yes, for the believer, prayer should be as normal as breathing, but I have to admit that prayer certainly does not come as naturally for me as breathing. I, every single day, breathe without ceasing. I haven't even had to think about breathing today. And yet when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, I can't say that comes as naturally. Can you? Prayer is sometimes the least natural thing to do. Human nature is by nature self-reliant. In fact, that is like the seed of, of sin. It's the, that mentality of like, I've got this. I've got this. If we're to be honest, when, when we get in a pinch and you know, the cards are stacked against us, we do a number of things. We get frantic. We try to fix things. We try to control our situation. We lash out at people. We blame other people. We give up and run. We isolate. We medicate. We do all kinds of things. But if we are to be honest, prayer is sometimes the last thing that's on our mind, especially when our emotions are high. So what I want to do is I want to step back for just a moment and approach the topic of prayer here in Psalm 55 from this very specific perspective. And I know it is a very specific angle on this passage, and I'm admitting that right now. Here's the main point that I want to make. That God is calling us to build into our lives a consistent pattern of daily prayer so that in every season of life, rain or shine, smooth flying or crash landing, our deepest, most natural instinct will be to cry out to God. So that prayer becomes for us as natural as breathing. So that verse 17 becomes true of us as individuals as an, and as a church. Look with me again in verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. So that we are people of daily prayer. Now, in addition to this Lenten series, what we've done is we've made this prayer guide available to you. It's already been announced earlier, but I do want to urge you to take advantage of this. It is a very simple guide for those who say, I know that prayer is extremely important, but I also admit that prayer is extremely difficult. You are not alone, and my hope and prayer is that this will help you to incorporate simple but faith-filled prayers into your morning your noon, and your evening. Amen? So let's see how this worked out for the psalmist. And where I want to begin is I want to begin with the most apparent theme in this psalm, and it's the theme of trouble. David is in trouble. 
And I hope that that was obvious as we were reading through this psalm. There's not a lot that we know for certain about this psalm. The details about David's experience, extremely vivid. Okay, he's very vivid. These are very vivid details about his experience. But the details about his, uh, his circumstances, what he's actually going through, what's happening around him, are not that clear. Some commentators believe that David is referring to a time that is recorded elsewhere in scriptures in 2 Samuel, where his right-hand man, his counselor, his like BFF, Ahithophel, betrays David, joins a coup that's led by David's own son that is seeking to kill David and take the throne. And Ahithophel betrays David and joins David's son. But we don't know for certain. But there are definitely some clues that lead us to believe that this is what's going on. But the fact that the details aren't very clear is actually very helpful for us because what it does is it allows us today in the 21st century to personalize this psalm all the more. We may never find ourselves in David's position. You will never find yourself in David's position, but we can certainly relate to what he's experiencing here, can't we? Think about what David has experienced. He's experiencing restlessness. I talk to so many people who are feeling just restless in their life. He's experienced, uh, he's, he's bogged down by the noise. We live in a noisy world. Sometimes we just have like sensory overload. Like I just can't hear enough. I can't hear more what's going on in the world and the news. I'm just like overwhelmed by the noise. He's in anguish. His stomach's in knots. He's experiencing fear and trembling, meaning his emotions are now taking a toll on his body. When he goes to bed, he's like sore and doesn't recognize why, because the stress is getting to his body. He's overwhelmed. He can't escape this constant reminder of how broken his relationship has become. Everywhere he turns, he's reminded of how this, this friendship or this relationship has gone so sour. He's ruminating on how much he's been hurt and wronged. He just obsesses about his betrayal. And now, as he admits, he's starting to be consumed by these like fantasies of very horrific, dreadful things happening to this other person, like being buried alive. Look at me in, in verse 4. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. So what David's describing here is that trouble has fallen upon him. The trouble that has fallen upon him has now gotten into him. He's literally saying, it's gotten into my heart. It has infiltrated my life. It's one thing to be in a boat that's in a storm, but it's another thing when the storm gets in the boat. (laughs) That's when you start to sink. That's when you feel like you're going down. And this is what he's experiencing. And, And trouble is very close to getting the best of him. See, that this psalm is an honest picture of how it doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how mature you are. It doesn't matter how emotionally equipped you are. It doesn't matter how determined you are. Trouble is going to fall upon you and often unannounced. It's just going to come out of nowhere. And at times, it's even going to get inside of you. It's going to get to you. And it's going to have an immense ability to sway your life. 
And unless godliness is formed deep within you, and in other words, unless you are taking your spiritual formation and Christian discipleship seriously, trouble is going to get the best of you. And it's going to lead you to actions, and it's going to lead you to responses, and it's going to lead you towards behaviors and thoughts you never thought possible in your life. And so what David humbly acknowledges here is that he's like right on the brink. His, his character is being bent and severely tested, and it's about to break. And what he tells us is that with trouble, unfortunately, with trouble also comes temptation. In fact, it's often when we are, when we feel wounded, when we feel weak, when we feel like we've been wronged, and when we are emotionally drained, this is often when we are extremely susceptible to temptation. So let's look secondly here at temptation. And David admits that one of the strongest temptations that he's experiencing right now is the impulse to flee. I just want to get out of here, to fly far away from my troubles, as far away as possible. Look with me again in verses 6 through 8. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Now, as we read this passage, that sounds pretty innocent, doesn't it? It almost kind of has like this like spiritual rightness to it. He's saying like, if I had wings, I would fly away. It's very like spiritual and uh, like whimsical. But this is just a poetic way of saying, I want to get out of here. It would be really easy to just escape. This is maybe one of the most common yet justified and sort of overlooked temptations that Christians are going to face today. It's the temptation of escapism. For David, the temptation was just to walk away from everything. Like, this is too much drama. What do you, like, I didn't sign up for this. No, I'm out. Walk away from his role as king, escape the pressures. It doesn't matter what happens. I'll just leave it to someone else to deal with it. I can't, I can't handle it. I'm out. I can't. I'm dead. I'm done. For us, the temptation to escape can take on various forms. It, it can mean the temptation to walk away, to just give up, to like push eject, I'm out. Deuces. See ya. I think it's becoming increasingly easier for us to walk away from difficult situations, increasingly easier to walk away from relationships, even, I think for a lot of people, increasingly more easier to, to just walk away from Jesus' church. Think about this. Throughout our normal days, we are often taking the path of least resistance. We are forming within ourselves convenience. I was at the grocery store yesterday, and there's like one line with one person and like multiple lines with two people, and I race to the line with the one person, and then I recognize they have more food than the two people combined, and so then I'm racing back to the other line because I am being formed for convenience. I am being formed for impatience. I'm being formed by this sort of impulsive nature. And so instead of forming steadfastness, I'm forming impatience. And then when the big things come, 
When the big dramas hit, when the big challenges come and and I'm made uncomfortable, I'm going to find it most natural to just give up and flee, to seek the path of least resistance. It can also mean the temptation to check out mentally and just shut down emotionally. We all have had these experiences when we're just emotionally overwhelmed by someone or something, but we know that we're, we're like obligated to stay. We know we can't actually physically leave. So what do we do? We just emotionally shut down. You, you, it is just too costly to care about you anymore. So I will coexist in your presence, but you're like dead to me. It can also mean temptation to turn to vices and substances to escape our experiences. These stats are probably not going to be a surprise to you. At the beginning of COVID, online liquor sales rose 262%. Now you're saying, oh, it's because everyone was in their homes and ordering online. In-store sales rose significantly as well. Johns Hopkins uh, estimated that over 60% of people said that they drank more in the first year of COVID than any other year before them, including their crazy college years many of which said was due to what? Stress. Stress. So David explains what is beneath this impulse to escape that we all have, by the way. It just may manifest in different ways. David shows us what is beneath that impulse to escape. And what it is, is that we are all, every single one of us, trying to find shelter. It's Natural to find shelter. When trouble falls upon us, we naturally try to find something as a refuge. But sadly, when we seek shelter in anyone or anything other than God, what ends up happening is we leave ourselves more vulnerable than before. We seek refuge in someone or something, and we make ourselves more weak and more vulnerable and more exposed than when we first set out for that shelter in the first place. But in the midst of trouble, in the face of temptation, David says these words in verses 16 through 18. But I call to God, amen, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and my moan. We're going to be talking about lament next week. And he hears my voice. I complain and God listens. Isn't that wild? He redeems my soul in what? There's the safety we seek. From the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. I want to be honest, respectful, but honest with you. Don't be so naive to think that when crisis comes, you're just going to naturally turn to God because you're a professing Christian. It's just extremely naive. Don't assume that you are rational enough that when crisis comes, you're going to know where to turn, you're going to know what to avoid, you're going to know your own temptations and impulses, and you're going to know how to engage God and others when trouble falls upon you. What is more likely to happen, what is most likely to happen, is that the patterns that you have formed are going to emerge. If it's been diligent patterns of prayer, Diligent patterns of prayer are probably going to emerge. 
if it's been patterns of stressing out and self-reliance and escapism and impatience and blaming others, guess what's going to emerge when trouble comes your way? Those same patterns just amplified. Just amplified. For David, it's proved to be a pattern of prayerfulness. And the idea here is about consistently dwelling with God, morning and noon and night, forming that habit of communing with God in prayer throughout the day so that when trouble comes, when temptations come, we won't get frantic. We won't be frantically looking for our refuge. We will not need to escape because we will already be close to our safety that is found in Jesus Christ. We will already be abiding under the shelter of his wings. We won't need to go anywhere. We'll already be home. Amen? So let's look finally at trust. And look with me again in verses 22 through 23. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will what? Sustain you. He'll hold you up. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O oh God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. We're going to talk about vengeance prayers in a few weeks. Come back for that one. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will what? Trust in you. So the progression of the psalm is fascinating. I'm fascinated by it. Because his prayer begins with how many of our prayers begin, mine included, with a focus on himself and all of his problems. Think about all the things that David has said in his prayer. Attend to me. Answer me. I am restless. I moan. Trouble is upon me. They have a grudge against me. My heart, my anguish, my fear, my trembling, my overwhelm. If I had wings, I would fly. I would go far. I would find refuge. Point received? But then, through prayer, and I mean honest, unpolished prayer here, a shift is occurring. We're, we're actually watching David's heart being transformed in the process of this prayer. Because he then starts praying, the Lord will save me. And God hears and the Lord redeems, and God will humble these foes, and God sits enthroned. And then he makes another crazy transition. He says, and the Lord will sustain you. So not only is his attention no longer on himself, but on God, but when he gets his attention on God and off himself, now his attention is on the community. He's encouraging the people around him. God will not let the righteous be moved. God will avenge his people. God will punish the wicked. And then he starts saying, in the midst of trouble, in the face of temptation, trust the Lord. Cast your, yourself upon him. Place your needs and your hurts and your wants and your burdens and your everything upon him. You can trust him. See what David's doing? He's discipling people. He went in just, how many verses here? 23 verses, 
from God. Me, 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 God, 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 God. Community, 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 community. Trust the Lord, trust the Lord. From needing to be ministered to, to now ministering to others. That's a profound transition happening here. And here's how this can happen in our lives too. Here's how we can remain steadfast in prayer in the midst of trouble and steadfast in trusting God when we too are tempted to flee. In the New Testament, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus, on the night before his arrest, he took his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane for what? To do what? To pray the evening prayer. And when he was there, he said these words to his disciples. Watch and pray that you may not enter into what? Temptation. Which was, later we see, to flee. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can I get an amen? Jesus also says in this moment, my soul is troubled and I am in deep anguish. Why? Because he too has been betrayed by one of his closest companions. What we begin to see is that the Garden of Gethsemane and this passion experience that Jesus has in his final week is sort of like sketched out for us in this psalm. Psalm 55 is a prophetic biography or maybe even a prophetic autobiography of what Jesus would experience. He too would be betrayed by his one of his closest companions. The terror of death had fallen upon him. The noise of the mob that was now forming to arrest him was coming closer and closer his direction. And this was his chance to flee. He could have got up, got up and ran with the rest of the disciples. He could have taken flight and escaped. And yet Luke records these words. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Isn't that interesting? In his agony, he didn't flee. He fell to his knees. He didn't take to his feet. He fell to his knees before the Father and entrusted himself to the saving plan of God. And he's not even to the cross yet, for goodness sake, and he's already prepared to shed his blood for his people. Jesus remained in prayer. And on the cross, Jesus remained in the pain and the shame and the agony. And in the experience of separation from God the Father, this is the consequence of sin, by the way, Jesus remained. And even as the guards taunted him, hey, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, come down off the cross. And yet he remained. He remained. He remained. And the point I'm making is that Jesus was steadfast in every single way so that you and I could be steadfast in every single thing that we face as well. And yet finally on the third day where Jesus, I love this, there was a certain point where Jesus is like, I've had enough. Where Jesus refused to remain was in the grave, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. And he rose up in resurrection life for our new life. And now through faith in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, his faithfulness 
his character, his persistent prayer life, Jesus' unwavering trust, his instinct, his nature is being formed within us. The psalmist concludes with a very simple and yet powerful prayer that I want us to make our own. But I will trust in you. May that be our prayer to God in the morning. May that be our prayer to God at noon. May that be our prayer to God in evening. May that be our prayer in times of ease. May that be our prayer in times of trouble. But I will trust in you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.